Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Gernot Lagander. He is the lead technical specialist for the climate change at the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development. Gernot, you were born and grew up in Austria. What made you want to work in international development? Well, thank you, Emma, for for being here. Um, You know, growing up in Austria is a real privilege. I I spent my childhood uh, very close to mountains, lakes and forests in a very intact environment. And I I developed a close affinity uh, with, you know, the mountains, the lakes and the nature there. And this was certainly an experience that has shaped uh, my professional choices later on, um, first as a geoscientist and then as someone working on natural resource management issues in, in developing countries. Uh, the road to international development was less straight for me. Um, growing up, uh, it was not lost on me that it was a great privilege to grow up in Austria. It was one of the countries that had an intact environment, a thriving economy, education was free and healthcare was free for everyone. Uh, so I had a very early sense also, I think, supported mm-hmm. by my parents that this privilege had to be put to use and that eventually I wanted an education that allowed me to give something back. Um, there was also a strong pull, I think, towards the international, um, mostly fueled by books and stories of explorers and adventurers and humanitarians. <laughs> um, I admired people from Austria who were not only great uh, sportsmen, but also you know, accomplished climbers, mountaineers, um, researchers and environmentalists at the same time. You know, people like Heinrich Harrer, for example, or Herbert Tichy or Hans Haas, you know, they, they made really large, uh, large leaps forward on, on environmental yeah. management. Um, so these were my early influences, a, a close connection with the natural environment and a pull towards the international and a good sense that growing up in a country like Austria was a privilege that uh, I wanted to put to use for something. So where in the world have you actually worked? Well, my my very first uh, exposure to international um, international jobs was interestingly with the petroleum industry. So when I studied, I studied applied geosciences at a small mining university in Leoben, very specialized, very technical. Uh, and I gravitated towards petroleum geology because the topic of energy uh, was to me one for the future. It was also... Uh, one of these uh, kind of jobs that allowed you to to travel to places like Libya or, or Norway. So my very first professional experiences were with the private sector. Uh, they were with petroleum companies. Um, but later, um, I... Did you feel you were doing good when you were working for the, those companies? Well, you know, when, you, when you're in your early 20s and you... Uh, you get thrown into your first uh, international experiences. Um, I think it's easy to 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 get a bit lost in the in the corporate world very very early on, and and that was I think uh, the case for me. Um, luckily, there were there were um, experiences also working with the petroleum industry that that always kept me grounded. There were in the in the middle of the 90s there were several uh, stories um, that showed. The, the very close interaction of the petroleum industry with uh, human rights violations in Nigeria, for example, yeah. or with environmental disasters. Um, there were things like the Exxon Valdez oil spill, uh, things like the Brent Spa uh, petroleum platform that Shell wanted to sink in, in the Atlantic. So th- those were really then 
um, experiences that opened my eyes a bit to the to the bigger picture. And there, my my work with the petroleum uh, industry was a bit at odds with also my love for the natural environment. And yeah, and I had a first, I think, real reality check on on what I wanted to do with my with my professional life. So, what did you? I mean, what organizations did you work for after that when you left them? So. After that, I uh, went into the humanitarian world. So I worked with an NGO uh, on disaster relief projects in Afghanistan and the Caucasus. Uh, This was then more drilling for water than drilling for oil. This was about water sanitation um, projects. This was about school feeding programs, uh, reconstruction of irrigation systems. and the humanitarian world, I, I would say, is also not without its problems. It was another yeah. another um, experience where you learn about how the world works, what I think you're good at, what you're not so good at. Um, I eventually made the decision that I did not want to stay in the humanitarian sphere where basically all the money and all the, the support is being delivered after people are already in big trouble fighting mm-hmm. for survival. Um, at the time, I think there were publications out that said that w- every dollar you invest in prevention into development saves you up to seven dollars for uh, for in humanitarian aid. So there was an economic argument for working on development and working on disaster preparedness, and not only on on humanitarian aid, which in many cases is also slightly disempowering to people because people are being portrayed as victims of a particular. Yeah. Um, event and um, then it's it's about y- raising money to save them and uh, in the in today's uh, view and perspective of development it's much more about empowerment it's much more about helping people help themselves so that was to me also a second juncture in the in my professional career and did you move from NGOs to international NGOs to government agencies have you worked the full gamut of organizations that's right. I think this was a good, um, a very good choice for me. I gave myself up to, you know, I would say 10 years just trying to find out how different institutions were performing, were approaching uh, international development. So I started with an NGO, an Austrian NGO, delivering uh, projects in the field. I worked with the Austrian Development Agency, which is a donor agency where I managed uh, a budget line for humanitarian aid. Uh, and then I worked with the United Nations, with the United Nations Development Program in the South Africa country office on energy issues, disaster preparedness issues. And then I remained in the United Nations system, but shifted to a different institution, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, where I'm working now. So what's the best job you've ever had? Well, I would say they all had certain um, certain experiences or they all came with certain experiences where I thought, this was time well spent. This was a worthwhile engagement. Um, it's difficult, I think, to to answer that question without the context, uh, without describing the context in which you work. The United Nations have an advantage of, I would say, access to high levels of decision making in government. They're very good at working at the policy level, whereas NGOs are much closer to the people uh, on the on the ground. Um, donor agencies have their own um, institutional structures, also certain imperatives that sometimes are more political. 
but at the same time, uh, the accountability also to the taxpayers is very high, and there is a big um, emphasis on monitoring that this this money is spent well. And from every institutional angle, you can really pick um, some yeah. good practices that eventually, in 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 my current job, I feel I can now, you know, put together into a cohesive whole. And there's a lot of sort of criticism of development agencies as becoming part of a self-serving industry as such. Do you feel that the work that you have done made a difference, a positive difference? I, I think that the question whether development works or how it works best is, is one that every development scholar or development practitioner asks him or herself and not only once but as a career progresses you ask this question really every year. Yeah. Um, and it is true that international development really does not have a very um, strong track record, especially in countries uh, of Africa or Asia. I mean, we are looking back at around, I would say, 70 years of the modern aid system, starting with the Marshall Plan in, in Europe. Even countries such as Austria have, in that sense, benefited from, from international aid. But the world we live in today has seen many different approaches to development, and some have worked better than others. I mean, there were times when we thought aid was all about sending technical experts and engineers to African countries to build roads and bridges. Then there were times when we thought it's all about financial transactions. So it's about a financial disbalance. The only thing we need to do is basically write bigger checks and fatten up the, the budgets of developing countries. And then there were structural adjustment programs uh, in the 90s where we thought the market will, will sort it out. Um, I would say that, you know, looking at all these experiences, there are a few things that, that, that have stuck with me. I mean, one is that it is really important, I think, that we understand smallholder farmers in developing countries, for example, as private sector entities. Very often we see them as victims who are dependent on, on, on international assistance, uh, but they're really very accomplished agents of their own lives and livelihoods. And very often it is about enabling access to better information or to certain technologies that they have no access to. It is about establishing connectivity with political processes. Um, it is about access to finance, about access to loans so that you can go to a bank and get a, get a small loan if you want to, to build a business. So in a sense, to me, um, one of the, this, the real solutions to the fact that development in the past does not have a good track record is understanding people who live and work in developing countries as enterprises and empower them with, with access to finance, technology, and information. Um, this will then eventually also increase their engagements with these wider circles of economic exchange that, that help them get out of poverty. So you now work in the fields of climate change. How is global warming impacting those farmers that you just mentioned in Africa? Well, climate change is something that is inherently unfair because it is impacting the people who are already living on marginal lands and in those countries where you are already dealing with droughts and floods and storms the most. Um, it is impacting those people in those countries the most. So in, in a sense, it, it aggravates the existing inequalities we see globally. Um, and this is something that we need to consider. 
Um, climate change for us, I think, in the international development world is, is perceived as a threat multiplier. So whenever you have an existing problem, um, it can be a political problem, it can be an environmental problem, climate change usually aggravates it. Um, I mean, we can talk about, for example, the droughts in, in, in Sudan or even in Syria that has had a certain role in, um, uh, in, in migration and in the government not responding uh, to a degree that people wanted or, or that people needed. And that can fuel a conflict. Um, so we see many examples where uh, climate-related pressures have a very direct link to migration, uh, a very mm -hmm. direct link to human security. Uh, and so that is, I think, also um, an important uh, vantage point. Do you think the international community is going to be able to come together to address climate change, to slow down global warming? Well, the international community is a broad term, right? I think there are certain... Um, very, very positive signals that we have seen, especially in the last year, where we had uh, 189 uh, governments agree on a, on a cl global climate change agreement in Paris. So that demonstrates that there is public sector leadership on the yeah. issue. Every country on board, this is very, very unique. I also think there is um, a, a very positive um, a development in terms of technology. So we have most of the technologies we need in order to get a grip on the issue. We know how to uh, how to transport ourselves in, in, in greener ways. We know how to insulate our buildings. We have renewable energy technology with battery technology. So there are really on the technology front, we don't have to do much research. We don't have to have very big lead times in order to, to tackle the issue. What makes me a bit pessimistic sometimes is that in, in, in certain countries there is very little political will to tackle the issue. There is a certain withdrawal into national borders in, in many countries, um, here in the U.S. as much as in, in many European countries. And that in a way runs counter to the, to the nature of the problem, which is global and does not know any boundaries. So if you are a country these days that emits a large amount of greenhouse gases, these greenhouse gases do not stop at national borders. So it's a problem we need to solve together and we cannot solve it within one country or one academic discipline or one institution alone. So there are positive and, and not so positive uh, developments right now. So what next for you personally? What do you see yourself doing over the next five years or so? Well, I think um, having worked on the issue of climate change now in the in the UN uh, for about 10 years, there is still a lot of work to do. Uh, to me, the entry point uh, working with smallholder farmers in developing countries is a very promising one because it, in a sense, supports development as much as climate resilience and green growth. It's one of the these, these entry points that for me make the biggest difference. So if I had to invest today um, my uh, my uh, salary into one particular approach to development, it would be to empower smallholder farmers in developing countries. So to me, I'm in the right, I'm in the right bracket, I'm in the right mm -hmm. job, and I will continue to work on this, uh, I think, until I really feel uh, we have made a more meaningful difference. And are you going to be able to help convince those people who don't believe in climate change that it really is a phenomenon? Well, I think... There, there will be there will be certain trends that 
no matter whether you believe in climate change or not, you will be affected by it. I mean, when you look into uh, the storms that have hit uh, the US over the past 10 years, when you look into <clears throat> the economic costs that uh, extreme weather events have uh, on national economies, this, these are things that are very real. Uh, in the past, we always thought climate change is something in the future. It's something that is something that developing countries experience. Uh, but I think we have we're past that. I mean, we are now everyone, whether you live in Europe and experience heat waves or whether you're in the United States, you experience drought or flooded subway stations in New York City. Everyone um, is in a sense um, very directly affected by it. And there will be an economic cost and that will eventually have to turn things around. Gernot, thank you very much. Thank you.